We could do cases, acid and bases, you know, and so (laughs) that was to, you know, that was to take a chance on me, like, and, and someone wrote in my evaluation, like, this is Harvard, and, you know, they're, she's wasting my time. They Harvard you. I teach you to look at P, read a biopsy. Everything that really counts. So, someone who got wedgies every year since second grade went, this is Harvard. Oh, come on. Look, at we have six all-star, yeah. seven all-star people here. There's nothing wrong with any of us. We're all yeah. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of evaluation that I like. To you, Roger. <laughs> to you. So we are back in uh, Channel Your Enthusiasm. We are covering the second half of uh, Chapter 2. That's actually enthusiastic. I don't think we're even halfway through Chapter 2. We had a great time reading through the first, what, one-tenth of it. We're going to get through the other 90% of that chapter tonight. We will not be denied completion. So I was so excited to get started on this chapter that I forgot to introduce everybody. I'm going to copy the introductions from chapter two just so people can remember their voices. But who we have, Anna, Letty, Roger, JC, Josh, and Melanie. The only person we were missing for this episode was Amy. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Melanie? Oh, hi, I'm Melanie Honig. You want more? Yeah, a little bit more. <laughs> I'm Melanie Honig, and I work at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and I'm lucky enough to teach renal physiology to the Harvard medical students. Excellent. JC? Hi, I'm Juan Carlos Vélez. I'm a nephrologist and chair of the department at Auctioner Health System in New Orleans. Excellent. Letty? Hi, everyone. I'm Leticia Rolona. I'm a nephrologist at UCSF. I also teach renal physiology to the medical students here. Roger. Uh, Roger Rodby. I'm at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. I'm the fellowship program director for 20 years now, which is 15 more than the average. Beating me up. Josh. Sure, I'm Josh Weitzman. I'm a nephrology research fellow here at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and I'm a structural biologist and biochemist. And Anna. I'm Anna Gaddy. I'm a nephrology fellow at Indiana University. And so we are starting on page 35, which is uh, determinants of glomerular filtration rate. Burton Rose starts off, says the first step in making urine is separation of an ultrafiltrate. What is an ultrafiltrate? It's a fluid of the of the blood that doesn't com- it's not composed of all the components. So you can, depending on what your filter is, it could be if it's a coffee filter, a lot of it gets through. If it's a sand filter, uh, bigger things get through. And obviously the glomerulus is very size permeable and doesn't let a lot of things through, but lets some things through 100%. Right. So we went through the permeability la- on the last episode. What we have here is chemically all the small ions, same concentration as in plasma, none of the proteins None of the cellular components get through. Some of the small molecular weight proteins get through, like beta two microglobulin and, and light chains can get through to a small degree. Okay, so what, we're gonna we're gonna call that up to 
40,000 Daltons, 30,000 Daltons, 60,000 Daltons. Where are we going to draw the line there? Maybe 20, 25. And we talked about that it's going to depend on the, the charge and it'll be a higher molecular weight if it's negatively charged and a lower molecular weight if it's positive. Correct. I see a lot of nodding heads yep. as, we, as, as people are starting to get rolling. And the key for generating this uh, ultrafiltrate is that it's, uh, it's, it's Starling's law, Starling's equation. What, what is it? Starling's equation, Starling's right? Starling's forces. Starling's forces. Starling's forces again. And so promoting filtration, we have uh, hydraulic pressure and we have the osmotic pressure in the glomerular filtrate in the Bowman space. And opposing filtration, we have the osmotic pressure Oncotic. in the capillary. Oncotic. Oh, thank you. Oncotic yeah. pressure. Can I ask, are we... We're calling it hydraulic pressure, not hydrostatic pressure. The rest of the world calls it because that's a Bud Rose thing, not a rest of the world thing. We're calling it hydraulic pressure. Can we talk about that or are we not going to? Because hydrostatic implies that it's static, yeah. but we're yeah. talking about the blood moving through the capillary, and so it really should be hydraulic. Interesting. I've never thought about that. I've always called it hydrostatic. Mm-hmm. Hydraulic is much more relatable. Hydraulic brakes and your capillaries, both of them. Yeah, no, that changed my world once I kind of thought about that. Okay. So the starling forces at the level of the capillary, we have two forces that are promoting filtration, which is the capillary hydraulic pressure and the glomerular oncotic pressure. Oncotic or colloid osmotic. So just say oncotic. Oncotic pressure. And and that's essentially zero. There's no protein. There's no uh, oncotic force on the on in Bowman space pulling pulling fluid across. Opposing filtration is going to be hydraulic pressure in Bowman space again, essentially zero outside of like a renal vein thrombosis, or excuse me, not a renal vein yeah, outside of a obstruction. obstruction, a urinary obstruction, and colloid oncotic pressure in the capillary, which starts relatively low, and as you go through the glomerulus, that rises as you filter more and more fluid. The protein concentration in the capillaries goes up and up and up and eventually uh, opposes further filtration. I think the remarkable the remarkable thing about this is you can think about it like any other capillary bed except there's some unique things about pressure changes and the um, and the permeability which doesn't happen at every capillary but the starling forces apply to every capillary bed. It's just there's unique things about the glomerular capillary bed. Uh, Rose talks that the filtration gradient begins at 13 millimeters of mercury and that falls to zero after you get filtration of 20% of renal plasma flow. Once you filter 20% of renal plasma flow, you filtered enough fluid to increase the plasmic oncotic pressure to oppose the hydraulic pressure, which also is going down as it moves through the capillary bed just due to resistance. And you get this equilibrium and you have no no further filtration. And we don't think this ever reverses. We don't think at the very end of the capillary bed, we start to pull fluid back from the Bowman space. Uh, Not in the glomerular tuft, but it does reverse in the proximal tubule, which is the foundation of tubular reabsorption. That is a lot of chapter three. Chapter three is a great chapter and I'm looking forward to that. Okay. So, but not in the glomerular, we don't have any of this reversal and that 20% of renal fl- plasma flow, that that's kind of caps it unless you kind of change some of the uh, baseline considerations, right? It's, we can increase filtration fraction beyond 20%. Absolutely. That, But that requires increasing capillary hydraulic pressure. We don't manipulate the oncotic pressure, but we can certainly manipulate the hydraulic pressure. Right. And, and, how, do, and how do we do that? Well, we do that by constricting the efferent arterial and dilating the afferent arterial. Uh, I would say we don't, we don't manipulate oncotic pressure, but oncotic pressure can change in disease states. Uh, it could also, the oncotic pressure in a Bowman space could also change if you have a leaky glomerulus from 
any glomerular entity. Now, all of a sudden, your oncotic pressure in a Bowman space is no longer none. And clinically, there have been extreme uh, anecdotal reports of patients who receive uh, colloids like heterostarch, and that leads to a dramatic a rise in oncotic pressure to the point that you could actually reduce uh, GFR. Right, so there's a, there's a number of things to unpack there. For, okay, so so one, you're saying if you have a leaky leaky glomeruli, you could let uh, albumin through this passageway, and then you can get oncotic pressure in the Bowman space. But wouldn't that hydraulic pressure be decreased because it become a less effective osmol because it now can pass across that membrane and now it's not going to pull as much water, right? Well, it's still there. If, if, if you got if you have protein in the Bowman space, it's still it's an oncotic pressure, but also. Probably, right, but the oncotic pressure is multiplied by its if the how permeable it is to the membrane. And once you've broken that, and you said, that, well, the only way it can get through is by passing through that membrane. That membrane is no longer impermeable, so you're no longer multiplying that osmotic pressure by one, which is one of the the permeability is one of the variables in Starling's equation, right? Yes. Although he mentions later on that the permeability of the capillary wall is relatively constant. Relative to the amount of change in other... Right. We're talking about a disease state here. You know, that's an interesting point because it's a... It, that's, I mean, I'm not a micropuncturist, but that's a tough thing to study. And that's kind of an assumption. We don't really know what can happen to the glomerular capillary uh, permeability. It's always assumed that it doesn't change very much. But, you know, you get so many variables when you're looking at this that I'm not so sure it doesn't. You know, I'm not sure that that isn't a big part of the decrease in GFR. And, for instance, uh, you know, ATN. There are many, many factors that lead to that. So it's not so clear to me that, that that's not something that could be regulated because it's, you know, the, it's not just a membrane. It's a, it's a living force there. I also think it's worth mentioning that the pressure as the blood enters the glomerular capillary is so much higher than an ordinary capillary, you know, because, you know, roughly 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury. And that's just so much higher than what we see in a sort of peripheral capillary that plays a really big role in the generation of the ultrafiltrate. Right. And, and the point to think about is that this whole structure is designed to filter, right? Unlike most of the capillary beds, this thing is, needs to move as much fluid as is possible through through the glomeruli. So all these factors are going to be pushing towards more of this uh, uh, filtration. Is that right? That's right. So Melanie, what, can you, why is that so much higher? Is it the blood pressure is the same going through the afferent arterial as any other arterial precapillary bed? Is it because we have the efferent arterial or is it because the afferent arterial will dilate or is it more higher because it, the efferent clamps down? In other words, is the afferent allowing more of the blood pressure to get there or is the efferent clamping now? Because that's a significant difference between any other capillary bed. You know, I've never really thought about that. If you measure pressures as you go from, say, the renal artery, often we're tasked with sort of learning the different arteries and arterioles as you go to the kidney. Each resistance vessel brings that pressure down. And when you get to the, as you know, to the afferent, it only brings you down to 30. And so it must be by design. But you're right. I've never really thought about that before. Maybe the preglomerular resistance is less than other beds, or maybe it's all, or maybe it's a function of the, I mean, it's clearly efferent arterial plays a big role in, in changing the glomerular uh, capillary pressure. This is something that needs to be unpacked. This is a, uh, one of the, probably the critical lesson to learn in terms of the hemodynamics of the glomeruli is you've got two sets of capillary sphincters. You've got an afferent and an efferent. And if you constrict the afferent arterial, you'll decrease renal plasma flow, You'll decrease GFR mainly because you decrease the glomerular pressure. And if you dilate the afferent arterial, you will increase renal plasma flow by decreasing the resistance. 
increase GFR and you'll increase glomerular pressure. And then constriction of the efferent arterial will decrease renal plasma flow, but it'll increase glomerular pressure and it'll increase the GFR. And that that kind of opposite effect of the efferent and afferent arterial is super important for uh, this process of maintaining GFR in the face of decreasing plasma volume or uh, perfusion pressure. In the and in case anyone needs a really dumb mnemonic to remind themselves of which one is the afferent and which is the efferent, the afferent is the one that is arriving into the glomerulus and the efferent is the one that is exiting the glomerulus. So A and E tell you which way A for arriving. You have e to just exiting. say that this is the only capillary bed with two resistance be- flanked by two resistance vessels. I learned in medical school at some point that there's something with the epididymis or the testicle or something that that's also has it there. But that's what I was taught. I've never been able to find it, so it's urban legend. But I swear I'm going to look for it. That there's one other <laughs> there's one other organ that has that that does that. I mean, it might be related because the kidney is so related embryologically to that anyway. So there might be something there, but. So we looked. We looked hard. We tried to find any evidence, any evidence at all, that the epididymitis or any part of the testes had an afferent and an efferent arteriole, and we could find no evidence of this. Our best guess is that Roger was hallucinating. But certainly physiologically, it's an absolutely incredible mechanism that you have to that you have the ability to dilate and constrict both of these vessels, and, and what, a, what a change it does to, to flow and pressure and ultimately GFR. And the only capillary bed with the sort of no interstitium around it, in essence, so that you can make that filtrate. That's a good point. True. Yeah, the mesangial cells could be considered kind of a hybrid of fibroblast and smooth muscle cells, but you're right, there's no actual connective tissue around it. What I wanted to say is that, you know, if we think about the top three mechanisms or path that we discuss in terms of renal physiology, the glomerular capillary network has to be one of those three. And and what is fascinating about it is that, you know, this dissociation between GFR and renal blood flow going in different directions, depending on which of the arterioles you constrict, initially is counterintuitive and let, until you do a drawing of how the pipes changes and you just think about a hose and pressing the hose on one end and the other end and what happens to the whole of the hose. But what is fascinating to me is that there is so tightly related to clinical uh, practice. Like you can name multiple examples where a pharmacological intervention leads to a change in kidney function directly explained solely by this capillary network. Okay, JC, walk us through that. Give us give us one example of that. The favorite example for all of us probably is going to be the uh, inhibition of the angiotensin two. And, and NSAID. So how do those work? So we know that, and we're probably going to expand on, on the role of angiotensin too a little bit. I think Melanie uh, mentioned something in the previous episode about that. It's very important about angiotensin II works in both arterioles. But anyway, we tend to think in a simplistic... So you're starting with the position that angiotensin II is important. It is important. Okay. <laughs> it's it's a role. Go go from there. Yes. That sounds that sounds promising. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So is Roger Robbie's in the house, so we gotta mention that angiotensin 2 is very important. In a simplistic explanation, because it's a little more complex than that, we we uh, we uh, interpret that the effects of angiotensin 2 are to constrict primarily the efferent arterial. For that reason, the hydro- hydraulic pressure inside the copper tuff increases favoring more filtration increase in GFR. Increasing filtration fraction. Infiltration fraction, correct. 
So when we use an ACE inhibitor, an angiotensin receptor blocker, or even a direct renin inhibitor, we don't have many of those anymore, only aliscarin. And when we use those RAS blockade agents, the efferent arterial is relaxed, therefore drops in the hydraulic pressure, leads to a fall in the filtration fraction and drop in GFR. And in the acute sense, it drops GFR. But we know that in the long term, that reduction in the hydraulic pressure is beneficial, antagonizing the mechanisms of fibrosis in the glomerulus. But that's the, that's the main reason why uh, angiotensin blockade is very important. Right. So, so every, every, every medical student learns that you start an ACE inhibitor and you have a predictable bump in the serum creatinine. And we say that predictable bump can be drawn right from what we just were talking about, that you get this dilation of your efferent arterial, you get a drop in intraglomerular pressure, you get a drop in filtration fraction, and you get a drop in GFR. Exactly. I think what's what's counterintuitive about that a little to learners is that you're actually increasing your renal plasma flow when you do that, because you reduce the resistance of the renal circuit, but even though you have more renal plasma flow, less of it is being filtered out in the glomerulus. So this is one of those where really, like JC, it's a drawing the picture for yourself a zillion times is really the best way to learn this thing. And I wish I had some higher tech fancy way to do it, but you just got to have the, the pencil and piece of paper and draw it a bunch of times. Right. And what's so great about that is it's actually just flipping around and you think about the natural system, the natural situations where angiotensin 2 is upregulated. And that'll decrease renal plasma flow because you'll be constricting the efferent arterial, you'll be increasing resistance. But even though you've dropped renal plasma flow, you're able to maintain GFR. So it's kind of the best of both worlds for the kidney. The kidney requires less of the blood flowing through it. You can shift more of the blood to the brain, heart, and other so-called essential organs, you know, but you're still able to maintain GFR and, uh, and maintain homeostasis. I want to take uh, JC's point to, an, to another level. So. I don't want to get too far into this, but the importance of, you know, you mentioned the importance of angiotensin 2 in certain situations, and, and that's the efferent arterial, its influence on maintaining GFR, but the afferent arterial plays a big role too. And so I like to see this, the patient with heart failure who already has a decreased renal perfusion because of heart failure. So they're really dependent upon the renin angiotensin system to help maintain their GFR. The angiotensin is doing what, uh, you know, what Juan Carlos said by increasing uh, efferent tone, increasing your filtration fraction. And so despite a lower renal plasma flow, a higher filtration fraction times a lower plasma flow equals a preserved GFR. On top of that, what do heart failure patients get? They get diuretics, then they get, then they get volume depleted. That further decreases their cardiac output. And then they get a little headache and they take a non-steroidal. And that's the perfect storm. It's the patient that has, that's volume depleted, who has, with or without heart failure, but is clearly has a decreased renal plasma flow and then can't accommodate either on the afferent or the efferent because, because prostaglandins will dilate the afferent arterial. So now you no longer can dilate your afferent arterial to increase your renal plasma flow, and you no longer can constrict your efferent arterial, and uh, everything goes to hell because your renal plasma flow goes down and your filtration fraction goes down, and that's a perfect setup for AKI. So it's not just the efferent that we see pharmacologically. It's a really you know important point. I mean, non-steroidals are pretty benign, and if you're a euvolemic, well-hydrated, you know, got a good GFR, they don't do anything. But if your GFR is dependent upon these things, you know, you can get into trouble. If your GFR is angiotensin II dependent, you can get into trouble. And if you're, and so we see that, and it's kind of a fun thing because that's such a, it's also rewarding because it's so reversible. It gets, they get 
better so quickly because it's purely hemodynamic. Well, and all those patients are on ACE inhibitors, and they kept taking yeah. them even though they felt bad. And and uh, yeah, and, and the perf- I, I used the same exactly the same phrase of the perfect storm, Roger. When I go over this, <laughs> it's so funny. It's just the perfect storm, literally, and uh, it, it is just been actually demonstrated in literature how if you take an NSAID in isolation or if you take an, an, an ACE inhibitor in isolation, the risk for hospitalizations is 1.3, 1.4 compared to control. But if you take a combination of the two, the, the risk for hospitalization is 11-fold higher due to AKI. So it is really a, a, a true clinical entity that we continue to see despite uh, being well described. So the next section in the in the chapter is regulation of GFR. He talks about three uh, processes here. Uh, the first is autoregulation, and this is the ability to keep this glomerular pressure constant over a wide range of arterial pressures. And so this is kind of this classic two-dimensional graph that we show with the increasing blood pressure and looking at the glomerular uh, the, the effect of the glomerular pressure and initially it goes up and it hits this point of autoregulation where despite increasing blood pressure, the pressure that the glomerular capillaries see is absolutely flat and it's flat for a long segment. And then eventually you go beyond that and you get to this period where increased pressure gets transmitted to the glomerulus. But that long flat period is this autoregulation. And uh, uh, Rose makes a point that autoregulation fails when uh, pressure falls below 70, which is uh, how many times have you written that in an ICU note, keep your mean arterial pressure greater than 70 to maintain perfusion, and that GFR ceases when your pressure falls below 45 to 50. And that he mentions that this autoregulation is largely mediated via angiotensin 2 and that giving an ACE inhibitor will disrupt this autoregulation and that nitric oxide was not important. This seems to be something, again, you know, fundamental process. We kind of deal with this all the time when we're in the ICU, trying to make recommendations in terms of blood pressure. Uh, any other thoughts about autoregulation? I just want to make the point, it's, it, this is something that happens in every capillary bed. We autoregulate the brain, we autoregulate the eyes. And what I always tell the residents is that you know, let's not talk about a number when we talk about malignant hypertension. Let's talk about a let's talk about a pathophysiology. And what malignant hypertension is is what whatever you're above that number, where you can no longer protect that pressure from getting transmitted to the capillary bed. So that could be whatever number it is for somebody who's chronically hypertensive. And everybody, different people have different autoregulation curves. So our dialysis patients can tolerate much higher pressures, and they have much higher autoregulation curves than a pregnant woman, for instance, whose whose blood pressure is used to being, you know. 90 over 60 or something, I mean, 140 could be malignant hypertension for that person because they're not used to be, to be able to, to, to autoregulate. So autoregulate, it's a very important thing, but different people and different physiologies have different autoregulatory curves, but I think it's pretty much defined. We've seen cirrhotics who are perfusing just fine with no blood pressure. You know, JC can tell us about that, you know, so they're really autoregulating at a very low blood pressure. Um, Pregnancy is probably in the middle. And then, and then we see, um, people with blood pressures of, you know, 240 who don't have a single problem. And, you know, when we took care of the COVID pay, this is a remarkable story, I have to tell you. We, we've taken care of uh, COVID in our unit. Uh, we had this dysautonomia that was going on where these patients would develop, I mean, within minutes, the patient's blood pressure would be 70 over 30, and we'd be dialing up the pressors. And three minutes later, it would be 250 over 160. I thought, how is this patient ever going to survive that? You know, and we we don't know what happened. It it would just go up and down, and we just did whatever we could to get them through. How could they not have cerebral edema? How could they not have uh, ATN or whatever from it? And 
no other problems. So it was a really remarkable thing. Roger, you know, we saw the exact same thing here. I remember we were, I was at the bedside and one of the patients who was on CRT for like an hour trying to troubleshoot with the pulmonary critical care attending like, why is the blood pressure doing this? And as we, the patient was diabetic, we were thinking about these things, like, can it be related to that? But it's incredible that you bring this up, that uh, it is a, a phenomenon that we see. And one other thing that I wanted to bring up about that is there's also this uh, normal tensive pre-renal AKI where you see the patients who they, you say, okay, well, they're septic, but they never drop their blood pressures or yeah, we control their blood pressure, but it never dropped below 100 or 110. But they came in at a, you know, at 160, 170, and that was enough to stimulate, to, to cause an AKI. That, that's a New England Journal paper that described that even dropping from 160 to, uh, to 120, this 40 point difference was enough to, to cause problems. The, the New England Journal paper she's talking about is the 2014 sepsis PAM study where folks compared randomizing patients to a MAP goal of 65 versus a MAP goal of 85. And so I think those of us who went through residency in the last couple of years are used to titrate pressors to a MAP goal of greater than 65 because patients with a MAP of 65 have the same mortality as patients with a MAP of a higher goal. But in the fine print of that trial, patients who had chronic hypertension and were titrated to the higher MAP goal had reduced rates of kidney injury and CKD coming out of their ICU stay. And so I think that's what we're all talking about here is that if you're used to a higher set point and you're used to autoregulation around a higher blood pressure goal, then it may make sense to shoot for a higher blood pressure target with pressors in an ICU setting or in another illness setting than you might shoot for in a patient who's otherwise got healthy blood vessels in a normal blood pressure set. Yeah, this is why I love being a nephrologist. (laughs) Because, you know, it would be, it would otherwise be so silly to put in a note like, oh, you know, aim for, you know, support the blood pressure. Like, okay, yeah, of course, this is what we're going to do. But to have that physiology, like that understanding of why we're, why we're seeing this. Yeah. In our uh, publication on, on KD360 on our COVID-19 experience, uh, we actually mentioned that about a third of the hemodynamic events that led to ischemic ATN were triggered not by shock, but by uh, dramatic fluctuations in blood pressure from a hypertensive level down to a normal tensive level. It's it's one of the tables in that paper. Uh, I think it's about a third of those cases, which was fascinating because uh, we were also shocked. We have not seen that magnitude before. Just a couple of comments on autoregulation. You know, we've been kind of talking about the uh, first of all, the mechanisms, you mentioned the tubular glomerular feedback and angiotensin too, but it's also this myogenic reflex mechanism that it, it's supposed to be one of the three that, you know, when there's increased pressure uh, in the efferent arterial, this stretch mechanism triggers constriction of the afferent arteriole that appears to be uh, not necessarily regulated by angiotensin 2 or by the sympathetic nervous system is kind of its own entity. Right. So I just want to, I just want to make sure that that's, that's clear that we think that the, that most of the autoregulation is provided by this, what I, we call myo. I wouldn't say most of it. I, I don't know if anybody <laughs> okay. knows here uh, what is in terms of quantifying the predominance of the mechanisms. I, I was just saying that it's one of the three mechanisms that are considered to contribute to the autoregulation. I don't know if anybody knows if this myogenic reflex is the most important or the least important. But the myogenic reflex just takes, the primary input is the pressure that's hitting the afferent arterial pre, pre- 
capillary sphincter. And the higher the pressure, the tighter that sphincter gets to prevent that pressure being transmitted to the capillary bed. It seems incredibly simple. You know, if you're if you're chronically hypertensive and you're chronically clamped down to prevent that from transmitting the capillary bed, you lower somebody's pressure. Yeah, it'll loosen up, but it won't loosen up in immediately. And it can take several days. So we definitely see a lot of AKI that's not even ATN, just a hemodynamic situation because the patient's blood pressure is so lower and that you're still clamped down. You're so used to that high pressure. And, you know, how do we know it's not ATN? Well, for whatever it's worth, urine studies with looking at the urine for granular casts aren't there and the urine sodium is low. It really looks like it's a hemodynamic thing. And a couple of days later, they just the afferent relaxes, opens up to the new blood pressure, lets the blood flow get through. It's a really remarkable thing. But I, I interrupted JC. I want you to continue with your thought. Yeah, yeah, I was just trying to kind of quickly go over the three mechanisms that are described in this chapter. The angiotensin 2, the myogenic reticus, and the DGF that will we're going to spend more time on it. What I just wanted to circle back to the discussions of autoregulation in the ICU is that this is also a very important phenomenon that happens in the CKD clinic. Uh, when you talk to, and it's something that I emphasize with the fellows, you have patients with advanced chronic kidney disease, creatinine 3.2, proteinuric diabetic nephropathy, and you're trying to reduce proteinuria and you're more aggressive with your rasblocade or you're trying to control blood pressure better and you succeed but it's very often at the expense of a little bump in creatinine. And, and, and what happens in the primary care clinic? They don't like that. They, they are concerned about that. So they back off on the ACE inhibitor. They back off on the blood pressure control. And then the creatinine gets better. It, this is something that is, I think it happens more often in a CKD clinic than in a primary care clinic. And it comes down to the fact that when you have chronic hypertension, and when you have chronic hypertension plus chronic kidney disease, your ability to autoregulate is not the same. And that's why you are much more vulnerable for those changes in blood pressure. Yeah, but JC, aren't are we in a no evidence zone? We don't know how much of a creatinine we can allow to rise. We have these, yes. these guidelines. If it would increase more than a third, we should stop it based on <laughs> we thought that's what we should do. Yeah. Like, there's no empiric data to support that. Uh, am I wrong on that? No, no, you're right. I think it's it was to be 20%, 25%. Then Brad Rovin published a paper years ago about 40% is okay. So, you know, again, this is why we have a primary role in managing these patients because we are more comfortable, we understand better, and we know that there are sometimes that 25 40% is too much because we're not gaining anything at the expense of that. But sometimes we're, we, we're willing to tolerate a, a, a change in GFR because we're accomplishing something that was a primary goal for that particular patient. I'm just going to disagree there just slightly. And I know that we're going to get there. Well, or maybe we won't since we don't talk a lot about the glomerulus here. But um, the <laughs> I don't think that we don't get anything, to be honest. And it is uncomfortable and you get a little tense. You see that increase in creatinine. But as long as it's accompanied by that drop in proteinuria, I do think we're doing something. I think there is evidence that by dropping the proteinuria, you do extend the no, life yeah. of the kidney. I, I, I think so, I think. I think Joel will agree on that. I, I think my, 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 what I understood from Joel's point is that we don't really have clear evidence of to what degree is okay to tolerate the drop in GFR when we're trying to reduce proteinuria and control blood pressure. I think we all agree that reduction of, of, of blood pressure uh, and reduction of proteinuria is definitely lead to, to good outcomes. I think we're all nephrologists and we're used to know we're seeing we're used to seeing creatins go up and down and I don't think we panic like most people and I think that's the point you got to just hang in there and see what happens if it's really AKI you'll stop it but getting back to Letty's point I mean this article about normal tensive ATN it's really a 
interesting title because, you know, forever we said, well, we've missed the hypotensive event. That's what we said forever. We missed the event. And that's really not, that's not the issue. The issue is that blood pressure doesn't guarantee perfusion. Letty, you have anything else to add there? No. Uh, Well, yes. (laughs) It's just that um, I almost feel that we need to separate these things. Like, yes, there's no data to say that, like how much of that increase in the, in the creatinine we could tolerate. Uh, I think the most important question is to what degree improving proteinuria extends the life of the kidney. And I think that we're so wedded to the serum creatinine that it really impairs us in how we're managing these patients, you know? And let's hold that thought because we are going to get to serum creatinine tonight. Yes. We're going to, be <laughs> a lot, we're going to go deep on serum yeah. creatinine. I, okay. I'm it's going to be tomorrow. <laughs> oh my God. It may be a while. Okay, no, let's go on. losing it a little bit. <laughs> okay. TG feedback is the next. So also regulating the GFR. We had autoregulation as one. Keep the perfusion pressure in the glomeruli stable. That's autoregulation. Second one is TG feedback. And this is, we're going to get some degree of filtration at the glomerulus. We're going to get some reabsorption in the proximal tubule. And after the proximal tubule, after the loop of Henle, we're going to see where we are. We're going to take a look at how much fluid has been filtered there. And if it's too much, we're going to fit, we're going to feed back, back to the glomerular and slow that GFR. Cause the last thing the kidney ever wants to have is to overwhelm the distal nephron with too much fluid. And this is the too much volume. Too much volume. And this is the core idea behind TG feedback is prevent flooding the distal nephron to an area where it can't handle all that fluid and prevent the kidney from peeing the body to death. No volume, no life. No volume, no blood pressure. It's the kidney is just so good at that. And this is another example of that. So here's what's been bugging me about this issue lately. I have the concept that if there's a large amount of distal delivery to the macula densa and Maybe the macula dense interprets that as, as just as you said, too much losses. And so they maybe it's thinking, oh my gosh, too much losses. Is this, you know, do I have ATN? Is there proximal damage and I'm not absorbing normally? And I got to shut this down. Okay. So I get that. But what if this is because of a pressure naturesis? How does the distal nephron tell the difference and say, okay, I'll let this go by? That's been bugging me lately. Let's let's walk through normal function of the TG feedback. So the idea is we're going to measure flow at the end of the loop of Henle. And the signal is going to be chloride reabsorption in the sodium potassium 2 chloride, the primary transporter in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. And when excess chloride is, is hitting there, that indicates too much filtration. And that feeds back to the afferent arterial through the macula densa to the afferent arterial. Is there any other structure that I need to know? Yeah, no. And then we're deploying, you know, adenosine. And it's adenosine is going to be the, the mediator there. Adenosine and some authors think is ATP, probably both. Okay. And so chloride is being received in the macula densa triggers uh, adenosine, which causes vasoconstriction of your afferent arterial. And that's the primary mechanism of TG feedback. And the opposite presumably happens if you have decreased chloride there, that's a that's a glomerular that's not filtering enough and you'll get dilation of the afferent arterial. Yes. We're good there? Absence absence of chloride delivery stimulates prostaglandin that that in turns leads to renin and angiotensin two. And this is where the first time I read this I got very confused because when the macular densa senses chloride delivery, this is too much 
I'm going to send adenosine to the afferent artery to stop and constrict. But when there is no chloride delivery, prostaglandin is stimulated initially to vasodilate, like you say, Joel, which antagonizes adenosine. And it makes sense. But then it gets more complicated when we then, what happens with prostaglandin subsequently stimulates renin, which ultimately leads to angiotensin 2, which is a vasoconstrictor, right? So it's almost like we discussed this a little bit on the previous episode. Yeah. It's a, the redundance of, of the system. And maybe when Joshua reviewed the most recent literature, there's also literature saying that be, after adenosine is released, Nitric oxide comes after as a vasodilator, so it's like the self the system is kind of self attenuates its own response. Correct. So walk me through what happens with Lasix here or ferrosamide, your classic thick ascending limb loop of Henle antagonist. Does that block this effect? Are you able to then continue to filter even though you're not going to be reabsorbing chloride? and presumably something that would normally cause TG feedback? So this was something I feel like I didn't understand as well until I made it through the chapter here. But the idea is that you get blockage of the NKCC2 channel in the thick ascending limb, which leads to increased sodium, potassium, and chloride delivery to the macula densa, which should normally lead to tubular marula feedback and also decrease filtration. But the difference here is that the same Lasix that blocked your thick descending limb also blocks the same receptor in the macula densa, and therefore macula densa kind of has earmuffs on and can't hear the chloride as it goes by. Um, so you actually end up getting effective volume removal on a loop diuretic, whereas things that block sodium reabsorption early in the nephron, say like an SGLT2 inhibitor, might lead to increased delivery of sodium chloride downstream and lead to increased tubular molecular feedback. Josh, that's, you know, very nice because I can remember to this day, walking as a fellow, walking into my attending's office, having the problem with with Lasix. I don't think we called it tubular glomerular feedback back then, but understanding how, you know, how that how that affected the whole system. And it really has to do with where the chloride ends up, that it's not actually being sensed by that area, even though it's there. It's it's a really important point because Lasix is a potent stimulus of the renin angiotensin system. Yeah, I think I think we don't emphasize enough when we teach renal physiology that the same co-transporter that is blocked by Lasix is literally the same protein that is in the macula densa doing its job. And it's just something that clinically we don't tend to connect those things together. But going back to this prostaglandin, it is actually being shown. We think about why the renin activity goes up in a patient on LACI. Well, they become volume depleted. True. But it's also true that because you're blocking the chloride sensing mechanism, I mentioned earlier, prostaglandin is released, renin is released. And that kind of magnifies why your renin activity will be elevated on a loop diuretic. Which is a really much better explanation than I got forty years or thirty-five years ago, but it's a really important point because it's it's it seems like such a paradox. Right. So we're we're at this point we're saying that one of the reasons that loop diuretics are such effective diuretics is not only do they block a critical point for sodium reabsorption of the kidney, but they also block the emergency break that the kidney does to slow down those particular glomeruli that are affected. And that one-two punch makes them particularly effective diuretics. 
Joel, I think I think that's terrific. I'm really glad you put it that way because I've not actually thought of it that way. And I love simplistic explanations. I love it. Yeah, it's a great perspective. So I'm just, I love the earmuffs, right? The chloride earmuffs. I'm sure it's wrong in a million different ways, but we're going to go with this because it seems it, it's simple. Now, Joel, let me let me ask you a question because I know you are uh, you are being big on, on the SGL2 inhibitors and, and the TGF uh, feedback. Uh, you probably know the clinical trial literature way better than me, but I've always tried to ask this question. Um, as you know, they, one of the hypotheses is the reason why SGL2 inhibitors are uh, sort of nephroprotective, it has to do with, with the delivery of chloride and the activation of the TGF leading to changes in hydraulic pressure, yeah, let's, let, let's walk. Let's walk through okay. this. Just let, let's, let, let's lay out the physiology before we go to the question. Gotcha. Okay, so normally when you have hyperglycemia, that's going to, you're going to get enhanced glucose reabsorption in the proximal tubule. And the thing that we don't ever think about is that all that glucose reabsorption occurs along with sodium reabsorption. And it's a little bit more complex, but chloride goes along for the ride. So that hyperglycemia actually causes, causes a lot of glucose and chloride reabsorption. So how does that relate to TG feedback? So now you're at the end of the thick ascending limb, and because of all that glucose reabsorption, you have less chloride delivery there. That signals via TG feedback, you get dilation of your afferent arterial through your prostaglandins, you get the increase in your renin, and both of those act to increase glomerular blood flow, and that results in the hyperfiltration, which is our first physiologic finding with diabetic nephropathy. Okay, so that's the, that's kind of our starting point. When you have this chronic hyperglycemia, you're causing this hyperfiltration, this increased glomerular pressure, and all this is going to be bad for future kidney function. Now, what does the SGLT2 inhibitors do? If the primary problem was all that sodium reabsorption tied to glucose reabsorption, if you block the SGLT2, which does, what, 90% of your glucose reabsorption in the proximal tubule, you'll flood the thickest ending limb of the loop of Henle with sodium and chloride that will activate TG feedback, and that's going to constrict your afferent arterial, and it's going to drop your interglomerular pressure. And there's actually, there's human data showing SGLT2 reversing this increased uh, glomerular capillary pressure, really reversing this very first finding of diabetic nephropathy. And there's laboratory data showing that adenosine effect with the SGLT2 inhibitors too. And I love how you brought that home with sodium and chloride, because in a lot of the review papers, they're just suggesting that sodium plays a role at the macula densa, but we don't think that's the case. So I love how you did that, even though I actually really hate chloride. <laughs> that's another story. Yeah. So I think what's important about this model that we're presenting here is I think this is probably a leading, if not the leading hypothesis as to how SGLT2 inhibitors uh, preserve renal function going forward in someone we started on an SGLT2 inhibitor. I think we don't know that that's true. The same way that we have a sense of mechanism for how a loop diuretic works and how that impairs the macula dense. I think we don't have that same level of understanding of SGLT2 inhibitors. So this is a place where we're kind of planting our best flag and taking a really good guess. Um, but as the science emerges and we get a better understanding of how these drugs work, that may change. Yeah, and I think it, it is true, Josh, and I agree with you 100%, but it's also true what Joel said, that it's human data, mm -hmm. and not to mention experimentally, that make this story very compelling. And it's also true that we're all biased to love the GF, and we want to believe that's the mechanism, <laughs> just because it's cool, right? Believe me, I but, love mechanism, but I, I, yeah. as much as I love mechanism, 
I love the fact that we know that these drugs save lives and preserve kidney function of even course. more than I love the of mechanism. Course. And so yes. we should still figure out how they work. But even yeah. if we don't know how they work, we should keep doing them until we figure out how they work. No question. I just want to bring back to my actual question, uh, Joel, because you did a perfect overview of how ACL2 inhibitors uh, modify the TGF. And what I wanted to ask is, you know, we have just discussed how loop diuretics can actually manipulate manipulation of the TGF. They block the chloride sensing mechanism. Do we have any type of postdoc analysis in these clinical trials uh, showing that patients on loop diuretics have a different uh, response to the? Because you would think that if this is a TGF and you're blocking TGF, where is the benefit, right? And I tried to ask the question to Vlado uh, Perkovic, but I, I don't think he had the answer at the time that, it, that I asked him. But it's a great question. Plus, since we're using these as heart failure drugs, there must be a ton of data there, right? Yeah. It's got to be there. Yeah. I will, sure, I will. because a lot of people are t- are withdrawing or peeling back the loop diuretics when they start these agents. So I think it's muddy. But I would add that just, you know, another supporting feature is that we do see a little bump in creatinine, just like we do with ACE inhibitors when yes, we start these yes. agents. Oh, yeah, the we do are see the a little fall. I, I, I will tell you, it's sometimes a lot more than a little bump. <laughs> I have, I have, I, these are very potent drugs and you need to respect them. You can get, it can get a little nutty. You know, you, you're saying we don't know exactly know the mechanism. So, you know, when Captopril was the first renal protective drug with in the, ID, the uh, uh, Captopril trial, you know, we lectured everywhere. We just talked about hemodynamics because that was we based it on the rat models of, of Barry Brenner and Sharon Anderson and, and looking at uh, glomerular capillary pressure. But, you know, angiotensin II also has a fibrotic effect and there's other things with TGF. So we don't, you know, I think your, your point's really good. We, don't, we may not know exactly the mechanism. Uh, we may ferret it out more in the future, but I think it's uh, it's important to acknowledge that we don't really always know what, what's going on. You know, this whole SGLT story, it's about the afferent arterial, isn't it? And that was the whole basis for the MDRD. You know, that was that was the study that was going to save everybody. It was we were going to protein restrict everybody and constrict their afferent arterial and prevent progression of renal failure. And it was a, the study was not a positive study. It doesn't mean that the effect still isn't there or wasn't there, but it was a negative study. But it's really the same thing. So. Drugs are always better than lifestyle changes, right? I mean, it's impossible to change people's diets. Let's face it. So um, that's why we have diuretics instead of stalt restriction. And, you know, and we've got a drug now that could constrict the afferent arterial, similar to what protein restriction we'd be doing. It's kind of like the MDRD reinvented because that was the whole goal of the MDRD was to lower glomerular pressure by decreasing amino acids that would dilate the afferent arterial after you ate them. It's it's a remarkable story. And it, it took 30 years later to maybe come to that point. Josh, when we were doing uh, the 2020 NEF Madness, uh, you notice I put the year on there because I expect people to be listening to this podcast for, for decades into the future. So back in 2020, <laughs> when we did NEF Madness, we had a category on, uh, on SGLT2. And one of the competitions was TG feedback as the primary mechanism versus non-TG feedback. And we're trying to explain this to our selection committee member who was uh, uh, Meg Jardine, who's one of the clinical trialists that did the Credence among other trials. And all she kept saying is, why do you care what the mechanism is? The drug works, right? Stop arguing about this. Just give the drug to these people, which is exactly what you're saying. And I think that's it's important is that we We're in a weird situation with SGLT2 is that these drugs are way more powerful than anybody predicted. There was nothing about the physiology that made us think that these would save the lives like they are. And now we're kind of retrospectively trying to give the 
explain what's happening here. But the reality is the important thing is these are drugs that save lives in kidney disease and in heart disease and what their mechanism is might be less important. I think we count our lucky stars that we found something that works better than we think it should work. We use it and then we fund more people to figure out why the thing works so much better so we can make more things that work better like it. And Right. And that's the argument is if we can figure out the mechanism, we can find better drugs. That's exactly do anybody else have anything else clever about TG feedback that they want to talk about? Uh, you know, the only thing is it just may play a big role in ATN. What's that paper, uh, Acute Renal Success? It's one of my favorite papers, the year 2000, American 1980. Roger's been around long enough. He's not even confusing years or decades, right? Like the two decade plus or minus kind of period. It doesn't matter, but I could I could picture the font. I've used that article. I love that article. I Every month I'm on service, I talk about acute renal success. To me, it's the only way I understand the decreased GFR in ATN. It doesn't make any other sense besides that. And then how does it happen? And tubular gamer feedback probably plays a huge role in that. Okay. So let's just walk through what acute renal success means. The idea here is... You know, everybody knows that you the disease that we see in the ICU, and we call it acute tubular necrosis. And you do a biopsy on these patients, and you look at the glomeruli, and they are absolutely normal. You're like, glomeruli are fine. They must have a normal GFR, and the patient has a GFR of zero. They're completely anuric. And so you're like, well, how can, if the glomeruli are fine, how can the GFR be zero? If the, you know, we're looking at the glomeruli, and they look fine. And the argument in this paper called acute renal success is that these patients have an extreme extreme form of TG feedback is that since the primary damage in ATN is in the proximal tubule, they're unable to reabsorb sodium in the proximal tubule and chloride melody. And so they flood their thick ascending limb with chloride that's not reabsorbed, right? Because 50 to 60% of all the tubular fluids can be reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. It floods into the thick ascending limb and you get massive TG feedback that shuts down the afferent arteriole. And so the glomeruli look normal but your GFR is zero. Is that a fair description of acute renal success, Roger? We reabsorb 99% of our filtered sodium. And if we resorb 97%, we'll become hypovolemic in no time because we're filtering, you know, 140 mLs milliequivalents of sodium per minute for- Roger bungles the math, but the lesson here is important. With a GFR of 125 cc's per minute and a serum sodium of 140, that comes out to 17.5 milliequivalents of sodium filtered every minute times 1,440 minutes in a day comes to 25,200 milliequivalents of sodium. If you can't reabsorb your sodium, you you will die so quickly. So it's a really remarkable teleologic mechanism of surviving tubular damage. I think it's absolutely incredible, and I think that that the feedback has that has to be the reason saying, I am not going to allow you to filter until I can handle the load. Because if I let you filter and I can't handle the load because my tubules can't reabsorb it, I will be dead in no time. And then once my tubules heal enough, I will increase my renal blood flow, allow myself to have the GFR. Because it's not explained by the histopathology. The glomeruli look fine. We've all seen biopsies with severe ATN. 80% of the tubules look fine and 10% of them have a sloughed uh, tubular epithelium. It's just an incredible physiology that doesn't correlate with its histopathology. So it has to be physiologic. And I have to believe it's, it's an adaptive mechanism. It's my favorite article. <laughs> it's a great article. It really it, it, And one of the best titles ever. Right. It's the, what do they call it? The uh, unlikely uh, the logic. The logic of, uh, of, of cubital uh, success. Oliguria. Of Oliguria. The, the importance of Oliguria, right? So it's, 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 it's a good article. I sent you the link. Ah, nice. Thank you. 76 of oh, it. 
But it was it was American Journal of Medicine. Yes, it was. The, the only other thing I want to say about TG feedback is just like mad respect for the people who did like single nephron micropuncture, which sounds like it's got to be the hardest freaking thing ever. Like not only do you get like one single pipette into a nephron, but then you have to get another pipette downstream in the same nephron <laughs> to detect what you're doing. Like, if, first of all, we've all put a dialysis catheter. It's hard to put like one tube into another <laughs> blood vessel tube, but instead of big blood vessel tube, it's a nephron. It's real oh. tiny. And so I just like these, these people are just badass. Like that's just the, the, the walk away point that I did. I never did this, but I understand that there are certain animals that have their like gloms really, really close to the cortex. And so where you have a better shot and then correct me if I'm wrong, you put a little bit of dye into the Bowman space and then follow it. And then you can see where it arrives. And that's where you would sample. I just know how hard it is for me to see my wire with an ultrasound, like let alone that. Okay. The... Neurohormonal influences. This is the last thing that regulates uh, the GFR that he talks about. Volume changes in angiotensin 2 and sympathetic nervous system, the role of prostaglandins. Oh, and then this was, he was talking about the different glomeruli, that the specific nephrons that are perfused with volume depletion shifts. You get blood being shifted from the outer cortex to the inner medullary cortex as your perfusion pressures go down. And this is something that Melanie brought up in their very first chapter when we were kind of talking about the basic anatomy of the kidney. We said, well, there's, you have these different glomeruli and the glomeruli that are closer to medulla have the long loops of Henle. And here, what we're seeing is as perfusion drops, we start shifting blood to these glomeruli with the long loops of Henle, which makes sense, right? Because those are the glomeruli that are going to be best at retaining water, best at generating that concentrated medullary interstitium. And so the kidney does that and you get the shift. And these are also the glomeruli with the larger glomeruli, the, the actually the nephrons with the larger glomeruli in size. And then he shoots his own idea down like a paragraph later. Like that was the idea that made sense to me. And he's like, However, redistribution of blood flow isn't necessarily associated with redistribution, distributing GFR, making this hypothesis less likely. You know, it's like one of those, like, <laughs> I'm not following the logic here, bud. Uh, any, anybody else, uh, neurohormonal factors that you guys want to talk about, or can we can move on to evaluation of GFR? There's a little bit about dopamine here. Was this in the, like, renal dopamine is a thing era of nephrology? Boy, did I live through that. And it took for years for us to stop using renal dose dopamine because you know the do- the low dose dopamine is is vasodilatory to the renal art to the renal uh, vessels, but it much higher becomes a vasoconstrictor. So it was always, I don't know, two to three or one to two micrograms per something. I don't know, but it was a long time ago that this is back when everybody got everything that was nonsense. But it does low dose dopamine does dilate uh, does increase renal blood flow a little bit, even though it's a vas- typically a vasoconstrictor. Just just one quick comment on, on dopamine, because, uh, you know, we talk about angiotensin 2, uh, we mentioned the sympathetic nervous system as primarily uh, mechanisms, hormonal systems that lead to sodium reabsorption. Later on, the collecting diet, we'll talk about, we'll talk about aldosterone, but there are not many mediators that promote naturesis. Naturetic peptides, obviously, their name tells it all. Uh, they are one of them, but the other big one is dopamine. Dopamine really, uh, the dopamine receptors form heterodimers with angiotensin receptors and kind of antagonize the proximal tool reabsorption. So physiologically are tremendously important. Why clinically they fail is, is for another day to this, for discuss, but 
I went through the time where phenoldopam, which is a dopamine yeah. A1 agonist, was being used and tested in clinical trials. And unfortunately, the, the trials didn't come up, didn't reach the primary endpoint, and that drug has also been abandoned. But being part of that study, I witnessed its effect as a diuretic. And there were cases pretty dramatic uh, that you could tell whether the patient got placebo or phenolobin just because the urine apple triple. So, wow. so it is, wow. it just, yeah. And there are case reports on, that you will find on PubMed that patients describe patients got phenolobin and made them pee. So it's just, I, I'm not here to propose that we should use it at all because we don't have solid evidence. But I just wanted to emphasize well, the fact that- Let's be clear. That, we actually have solid evidence that it doesn't work. Right, well, tested a lot, never worked. Well, dopamine, yes, but phenolopam. Uh, and phenolopam. And phenolopam got well, tested pretty well. It got tested pretty well. Uh, again, it's, it, it's a long discussion. Um, it lowers the blood pressure. It lowers the blood pressure. It lowers the blood pressure. Pretty good, pretty good antihypertensive. It is, yeah. That's how it was FDA approved. There's always a question of power, and the problem is you never really know if it's a, if it's a type 2 error or not, but uh, at least there was not a great signal that it was going to work. Bulk of the trials in the cardiac surgery uh, world. Yes, and, that's and contrast. Those, yeah, con- wait, no, contrast is a whole topic, but, you know, ca- cardiac, sur- <laughs> cardiac surgery trials, you know, that it's just the, the number of events is so low that you're going to have to, it's very difficult to power them. Yeah, I, I, again, my main point was more about the physiology of dopamine that is really an important... Uh, and chapter three goes back and talks a little bit more about dopamine because that's where it acts in the proximal tubule. So we will get an opportunity to talk more about dopamine next episode. What do you got, Melanie? Did you want me to say anything about endothelins, especially people are interested in sparse sentin now? So Lay it on us. I'm just going to tell you a teeny bit. Endothelins are a family of 21 amino acid peptides that were first known as powerful vasoconstrictor properties and named because they were thought to be produced primarily by endothelial cells. Now we know that they're made by virtually every cell and might act on every cell also. Endothelin 1 is the one that's supposed to be the biggest player in the kidney. And endothelins play a role in renal blood flow, in glomerular hemodynamics, and sodium and water transport. All sorts of bad behaviors have been attributed to the endothelins, especially endothelin 1, which promotes cell proliferation, hypertrophy, inflammation, and extracellular matrix accumulation, all of which are important factors in progression of CKD. So that sounds like a really great target for therapy, but not so fast because renal endothelin is also an important regulator of sodium and water excretion. So blocking endothelin can lead to sodium retention, and that would be a sort of rate-limiting or therapy-limiting issue. So we have positive and negative trials here, right? Yep. And I think we'll probably hear more about that at Kidney Week. Right. Wasn't there a, was it Sonar? Sonar, Yeah. So there was- Which was a diabetic nephropathy trial. It was positive. Mm -hmm. The stuff worked. The stuff was, worked. I think that we, I think we talked about it in FJC maybe a year ago or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so I think the concern was that the fragility index. That would be 2019 for you Sorry. people in the future. 2019, <laughs> we talked about it in FJC. Uh, I'm just pulling up my notes then. But I, yeah, the concern was that the fragility w- index was quite low, uh, meaning that it wouldn't take that many people who had a benefit, not having a benefit to change a trial from being a positive trial to a negative trial, uh, if I'm getting my fragility index right. And that, and I think the other concern was that the, the trial was actually ended by the sponsor because before they, before they had finished enrolling enough patients because they thought the rates of events were too low. And then between deciding to stop the trial and actually stopping the trial, they had enough events that the trial actually was positive. 
Yeah, it's a very strange situation. Rarely do you see a trial sponsor abandon a positive trial. Like <laughs> it may be the only yeah. time it's ever happened. And it, and, it, and it, this is a case where it happened. They had a very tight selection criteria to enroll patients. They were really careful because there had been previous endothelin antagonist, his name I can't remember, that was bombed out because of fluid overload, the, the problem with the sodium retention that uh, Melanie was talking about. And so when you get patients that have a cardiac history that a lot of these diabetic patients have, it becomes a little touchy in terms of who you enroll. Okay. On to something called GFR. So GFR, I'm not sure if you're aware, it stands for glomerular (laughs) filtration rate. And uh, Burton Rose goes out on a limb and he says, this is a great way to assess kidney function. He says it's not the only way, but it is a way. It's an index of functioning renal mass, which I thought was crazy because I saw a patient today, 72-year-old man, creatinine is 0.9. Five years ago, he had a nephrectomy. He's seventy-two. He's got to create one kidney, creating zero point nine, and not like a, and not like a you know cirrhotic patient with no muscle mass. It was it was imp- it was an impressive example of how poor the creatinine sometimes can be for assessing uh, uh, renal mass. And he says that, that that a fall in GFR it may oftentimes is the earliest and only sign of uh, renal disease. And it's it's kind of interesting reading this chapter because it, it's. This book was clearly written before the EGFR revolution not only took over nephrology, but really swallowed all of internal medicine. It became the way that we began. Everybody knew everybody's GFR because of the proliferation of Andy Levy's EGFR uh, calculation from the MDRD study. This book, it just, it misses that. This book was published in 2001 and Levy's, his abstracts come out in 1999. And it's a little, it's a, I mean, it could have been in the book, but you know, whatever, this chapter was already written. (laughs) Chapter two is already in the, in the can. Before that stuff came out, and he misses all of that, and uh, so it's kind of it's a bit of a time capsule reading this with this missing. Well, it, it is, it isn't, it isn't because I mean I think there's so many, so many important points that come out of uh, of this chapter about creatinine secretion and and single nephron GFR going up so that creatinine that someone's clearance may be much better than their renal mass. You know, you might lose 50% of your renal mass, but only lose 30% of your renal function because single nephron GFR goes up. But you also have to be careful because secretion will increase as GFR goes down. So your creatinine clearance goes down less than your GFR goes down. There's all these factors that really have nothing to do with how well you measure it. It really gets down to comparing what Cockroft and Galt is, which, which is his gold standard in this chapter, to what some of the better measurements are. Creatinine clearance has two things that cancel each other out. I hadn't even quite quite realized. Yeah, let's clear. let's let's walk through this because one of the things that I I absolutely was delighted reading was his derivation of all these formulas that I learned the end product and never kind of walk through where it comes from. He starts with inulin clearance. My favorite part is he's uh, this sentence: consider a compound such as the fructose polysaccharide inulin, and then in parentheses. Not insulin. <laughs> oh my God, did I make that mistake when I was a resident? <laughs> I was like, what is this? Why, why are we using insulin? Oh, inulin. I have heard that jicama has inulin in it. Does anyone know if that's true? What? I, we eat this a lot. And so the key factors of inulin is that you can infuse it and it'll give, you can infuse it to get a stable plasma concentration. 
It's freely filtered at the glomerulus, and it's not reabsorbed, secreted, synthesized, or metabolized by the kidney. And he says, in this situation, filtered inulin equals excreted inulin. And this is the, this is such a simple idea. Every bit that's filtered is going to be excreted. And then he blows it up. Well, how would you calculate how much is filtered? Well, you would take the concentration of inulin and you'd multiply it by the GFR and the amount that's excreted. Well, that's easy. It's the urine volume times the urine concentration. And then you just use algebra and you solve for GFR, which is one of your variables. You get GFR equals urine concentration times urine volume divided by plasma inulin concentration. Boom. UV divided by P. It's like one of the most foundational equations in nephrology. It's right there. And it's and it, it's so simple, right? It, that's what's so great about the equation. It's so easily approachable. And so that's how you calculate, that's how you can calculate GFR from your inulin. And then he blows it off and says, unfortunately, no one can measure an inulin concentration. <laughs> I love that line. And apparently it's very hard to get into solution. It's, it got quickly replaced by other isotopes because it was, it was just a very hard substance to work with. Even when they were doing it, it was not just a matter of measuring the inulin, but getting it in the solution to get to have a steady state infusion, uh, 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 apparently. It's uh, kind of a, a funny substance. It doesn't go into solution very well. But clearly, it's the gold standard of something that's filtered and not secreted or reabsorbed, which is what we think we assume creatinine is to a, to a pretty good extent, but isn't 100%. And that's one of the problems of creatinine as a measurement of clearance, right. of GFR rather. Right. And then Burton Rose very quickly moves on from uh, this kind of hypothetical world with inulin onto creatinine. And he does have this point that uh, that Roger was talking about, that one of the standard errors with creatinine is though, like inulin, it's freely filtered. And like inulin, it's not reabsorbed or metabolized or synthesized in the kidney. But unfortunately, it is secreted. And at normal kidney functions, about 10 to 20% of the creatinine that ends up in the urine is not filtered creatinine, but is secreted creatinine. And then there's this wild line. He says, well, don't worry about that because 10 to 20% of the measured creatinine in plasma is actually non-creatinine chroma." Chromagons? Chromagons? Chromagens. Chromagens. And it's, it's acetone and pyruvate and something else. So it kind of cancels out. I, and it I cancels out, that. yeah. That's amazing, actually. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And what, how lucky can that be? Those were the types of things that Bud loved most. And like the <laughs> fact that an average person excretes about a gram of creatinine a day, that just tickled him. He really loved that. Like the simplicity of it. What is also a very interesting about this creatinine secretion that cancels out is that, you know, for the young listeners, they're probably familiar with famotidine, which is Pepsid, or maybe familiar with ranitidine, but cimetidine was the old H2 blocker that actually blocks uh, uh, that secretion of creatinine. So years ago, investigators tried to, oh, we're going to correct this secretion of creatinine problem by uh, pre-treating patients with cimetinine, and they will measure GFR or creatinine clearance, and it never really translated into superiority. I mean, it's not used clinically today for a reason. But it's also clinically, it's not that much. I mean, it plays a bigger role with lower GFRs, but it isn't that much to be clinically significant. But you're right. You give cimetidine and measure the creatinine clearance, and you get a better measurement of the true GFR. Trimethoprim does the same thing. It blocks creatinine secretion. So I, sometimes you'll see, obviously, you all know the 
with uh, somebody on Bactrim, their, their creatinine might go up a little bit, and it's just blocking creatinine secretion. And it just it just emphasizes the point that creatinine clearance is always a little bit higher than GFR, and if you can block that, you'll they'll be equal. It's also important clinically because oh, sorry, Letty. No, 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 please. It's no, important no, no, please. clinically because several um, HIV medications also block creatinine secretion, like dolotegravir and cobisostat. And so it's important to have that in mind when you start those agents, so that the patients, if the creatinine goes up a little bit, you know why. Yeah, this creatinine secretion, it's, it's interesting because it gets saturated at a creatinine, serum creatinine of around two, that that early on, as your creatinine goes up, that secretion really starts to, to accelerate. And then eventually you, you tap out, you maximize its secretion, and then your serum creatinine will track closer to your GFR. Does it accelerate or does it just play a bigger role because your GFR is lower and you're and it's just a greater percentage of your GFR becomes from secretion. No, it says, he, he talks about it. He says that, you know, um, basically at the lower GFR, because you have the initial increase in the serum creatinine, you kind of saturate or you trigger the proximal tubule reabsorption of, of the... So there's figure 2-12 on page 57. And at least from what I understand from the caption, if you want to take a look at that, the stuff below the line, the dotted line, which is the creatinine's in the normal range, there's this wide variety of GFRs for a fixed serum creatinine. And once your creatinine rises above about two, you see a lot less of this variability. And he accounts for that based on the fact that this this molecule saturated at that point. Yes. Yeah, no, you're right. And it says, so as the GFR falls, the initial rise in the plasma creatinine concentration enhances creatinine delivery to the proximal secretory pump. And so that's why the, the secretion is plays a bigger role. And the thing that uh, that I've, I've really taken from this is that just for, for a long time, and especially now with all the issues with the eGFR calculations, we always thought that the gold standard was the 24-hour urine collection for creatinine clearance. And no, like this will always be burned in my brain now that the GFR that you get with the 24-hour urine collection to creatinine clearance is the upper limit of what the true GFR may be. And the variation can be quite large, actually. So I don't know if you guys ever do this, but because of this issue of the GFR being uh, overestimated with creatinine, do you guys, when is it standard practice that you also check a 24-hour, in your 24-hour urine, a urine urea? which would then do the the lower limit. And then you know that the GFR is somewhere in between. Well, that's certainly been recommended by a lot of people. You average the urea clearance and the creatinine clearance. And the the urea clearance is always, on average, is about 50% of the creatinine clearance because 50% of your urea is typically reabsorbed if you're euvolemic. And that brings it down as a fudge factor. And I suppose if you really need that number, that would be something to do. From a clinician standpoint, it doesn't really... I don't need that information. I don't need to know if I'm 20 or 30% off. I can make my decisions clinically without a number. These numbers don't mean that much to me to, to that I'm making decisions on. But yeah, that's definitely what people have done is to, as a fudge factor, bring it down. But but Ro- Roger, I mean, you say that these numbers are not that important to you, but all of nephrology has gone the other way and it's become yeah. the most important number in nephrology. I mean, NKF has a, they had that whole thing that said, know your number, right? Right? They were telling everybody to know what their GFR was. And, and this uh, is why we get so stuck. But Joel, do you agree with that? Uh, 100% I agree with you. No, I 100% agree with oh, you. Oh, good, good. No, but I, it's just- I couldn't disagree with that more. I agree with you more. I think it's ridiculous. 
ridiculous. It's it's it's, it's not a number. Well, and it's why the whole problem with the EGFR exploded is because of all the emphasis that was put on this number, despite really what the hard clinical evidence was. You can't depend on the number, right? In terms of starting dialysis or all that, except for well, if you want to get on the transplant list, that's a hard number, right? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, when the first KDGO guidelines came out which were called the NDOCI guidelines. Remember the NDOCI guidelines were the first guidelines from the National Kidney Foundation. It was a paragraph, there was a paragraph about recommending the average of the 24-hour creatinine creatinine clearance and urea clearance average of the two for individuals below estimated GFR of 25. It was recommended. Uh, so I was an obedient uh, a fellow and a junior faculty, and I was doing it very often in my practice and progressively realized that it was not really useful, and I dropped it. But I, I have to say, Letty, that over the last five years, I, I probably have done it less than a handful of times, and, and, and that's just what I have done. In situation, what is the scenario? You have a diabetic that your estimated GFR is 19 right, or 20, uh, based on the creatinine. Yeah, the muscle mass is a little bit tough, and the patient happens to have diabetic gastroparesis and is coming with nausea. There's nothing else that is pointing that the patient is uremic. Are you going to start a patient on, on dialysis? So I'm not telling you that the average of urea and creatinine are going to be the ultimate factor. No, that's true. But I sometimes I have ordered that just to get more information. You know, what is this number telling me? Uh, in terms of what I'm trying to assess, is this patient uremic or is having just da- bad diabetic gastroparesis? I, I think it's yeah. those scenarios. I think it, I personally find it valid, but certainly not a routine test by any means. Yes, for sure. And, 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 and I, I could not agree more. And a lot of times I think it could just be a good learning point and in terms of like, you know, for us, we, when we're teaching the medical students and things like that. But I want to recognize that this chapter, first of all, it's taken us, you know, all this time to get through it. But look how much time it's, it's spent talking about creatinine. And then also at the same time, all the different ways that then we discredit how creatinine is so unreliable in so many different scenarios. And over time, like, a, you know, now several years into being a, a nephrologist, like the less and less I, I'm wedded to the, the creatinine GFR number. And, 100%. And, and, and they, they actually talk about that in the chapter here. And they say that what is the most telling is the change in the GFR. The Delta. So the yes. Delta GFR. Oh, yes. I love the Delta GFR and the creatograms. This is what I think is really helpful for us. Absolutely. The, the time that I use the 24-hour creatinine clearance, the, co- the most common time I'm putting it is the young, fit person who comes in with a creatinine of 2.2 and they're a bodybuilder and maybe they're on creatine supplements. Maybe they're on some other yeah. supplement that they're not telling me. And I don't know what, you know, and I get referred from a primary care doctor. This patient may have CKD. Can you help evaluate that? I always reach for that, that 24 hour creatinine clearance though. Reading this chapter, I'm wondering if I was over reassured by these high GFRs that I get, you know, it's 110, it's 120. I'd say you're fine. Maybe I'm just Look, you know, as as Letty was saying, that's the best case scenario. 
And maybe I've yeah. been uh, uh, a little red. Maybe it's not as accurate as I had hoped. Yeah, and for those cases, Joel, you know, the, the urea factor is out. You know, you you just do a twenty-four hour creatinine clearance, like you said. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah correct. And I'm just trying to control for muscle mass, right? Yeah, and I, sometimes I do that, and and sometimes I do that plus a little cystatin C. Uh, uh, I have a, the dubious distinction of being the nephrologist for the Chicago Bulls. So every year I get a call from the sports medicine people when they're looking at people for the draft, and they do these pre-physicals and they see these guys with cretins of 1.5, 1.6 and they say, do they have renal disease? And I say, well, you know, I have one day to decide before they have to decide whether or not they're healthy enough. So what do we have, you know, what are the options we have? We can't get a cystatin C that fast. I can't do a 24-hour creatin. You know they're muscular. That's probably a normal GFR. They just make a lot of creatinine. So we're kind of stuck. And so, you know, I'll do an ultrasound and a microalbumin. I can get that. And I figure if they don't have a microalbuminuria and their ultrasound's fine, they're probably fine. But it's the same kind of thing, Joel. Well, and they're 18. They probably haven't gotten a, a lot of BMPs in the past. Yeah, well, we don't have that. If they did, we don't have it. And no one's going to give that up. They just show up, you know, want to be drafted. And another thing that I've done uh, occasionally, Roger, that is done in the transplant medicine world is doing a, a DTPA uh, a GFR by nuclear medicine. It doesn't have a creatinine as a variable. And this molecule is... Uh, filter through the glomerulus and my understanding is it's it just doesn't get much of reabsorption and secretion so it's a good uh, indicator of gfr uh, and you can run that test and get the answer the same day uh, so i've done that occasionally particularly when you get those consults of patients going to go for a heart transplant and then try to say should we do a heart and a kidney transplant so in those situations, you really want to get a good number, as good as you can get. Uh, so it's important to be aware of this molecule, uh, DTPA. And since we talked about autoregulation minutes ago, it's probably good also to mention the other nuclear medicine test that we order occasionally, which is the MAC-3. And this molecule gets filtered through the glomerulus. Part of it gets filtered. Part of it gets doesn't. Just so part of it gets filtered. Part of it goes across the glomerular tuft and then gets secreted. So what goes into the urine is the sum of whatever gets filtered and whatever gets secreted, which ultimately is the renal blood flow. So the MAC3 is done where you're looking at renal perfusion, not for GFR. And it's a test that, you know, I don't think we order a lot. Urologists order it. Urologists order it a lot. For obstruction, they get differential correct. function left and right. Yes, but I think it's important Anna, to make that distinction. Gonna, Anna, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say that I think this is one of the main differences between nephrologists and other. I think people get frustrated a lot, like what, like when I have students or residents on my service, and they're like, "Well, what exactly? What stage of AKI is this, or what you know, stages of CKD?" I'm like, "I'm not really that concerned. That's not something I think we're homeostasis doctors first, and so what we're concerned about is how well is this person maintaining, you know, their homeostasis, and not so much like what category do they fit into. Those were all sort of arbitrary categories that were designed for another purpose but but you know nobody i know is like oh well they're ckd stage 5.73 now they need to start dialysis but so you know it's it's interesting but like the trend is much more i think that might be frustrating for some people who are flirting with nephrology but not nephrologists that that we're not quite as married to those hard um yeah i I mean i i think retrospectively we're going to look at these first couple of decades of the 21st century as saying nephrology really leaned into these egfrs these very precise measurements of gfr and honestly Population-wise, they work remarkably well. The data, when you take a ten thousand people and you know and look at you know like the work that um, Dr. Go is doing. What's his first name? Alan Go. Alan, Alan Go. 
and go, he's here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his work on looking at the ability to predict hospitalization or mortality based on these EGFR is really remarkable. It works great when you get a thousand people, but I got to take care of one person. And when you want to work on one person, it's just not that helpful. I was going to say, I think it really, we lost something in delivering that number where we lost nuance. We lost the ability to talk about muscle mass and um, nutrition, amputation, cirrhosis, and how creatinine is handled in the kidney. And then we're just giving a number. And I, I think it's really a shame. And I also, I hate the stages because it makes you think you're, you know, inexorably going to the next stage. And I get it why they rolled that out, you know, I think maybe NKF thought, well, everybody hates the kidney. And so people will have common problems at common levels of kidney function and you won't have to know what MPGN is. But it was just really a shame. Especially when patients refer to it as percentage. Uh, a lot of people go, well, we're sending my now. I'm like, well, you're 51 last time and now you're 47. It means nothing. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, mind, as much as I, I uh, criticize the problems that CKD syndrome has brought to nephrology and with those referrals for a 92-year-old lady with a GFR of 39 or 42 with no proteinuria. You know, what is this lady doing in my clinic, right? I have nothing to offer, but the number prompted the consult. So that's the part that we all agree that is probably a negative consequence of the CKD staging. But, you know, let's go back to prior to CKD staging where people were calling uh, Chronic renal insufficiency, chronic kidney, uh, renal disease, uh, I don't know, renal impairment, renal dysfunction. It was just a mixed salad of terminology, and nobody knew what it meant. And, and nobody you know, was even studying it, right? We weren't even getting good data. With, nothing no, was it, was, it was a mess. It was a mess. So I think, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I get your point, Melanie. I, I have all, I, and I think in a way, similarly, that we just hate so much of those issues that CKD staging brings and how much of the inaccuracies. But I think it has helped provide some structure to understand levels of kidney disease uh, so that you can communicate to your patient with certain numerical information. And how you communicate that still, you know, still is imperfect, but we have some tools and we just have to continue making it a better tool. Well, and I think for things that progress linearly, it makes a lot of sense. But it's just, it, you know, for inpatient consults, which is my whole life right now, th- this chapter is a lot more fitting than Yeah, that. inpatient inpatient nephrologists, you know, this is when if some if I hear the word GFR, I get a rash. I'm like, don't tell yeah. me about GFR. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't want, I, and then I, does I, someone I do a right stain on your urine? Right. You know, and then you really get a right. What are you talking about? This is a patient. <laughs> so this hospital. is a really important point that JC is bringing up is I think that going from creatinine to EGFR in the electronic medical record, you skip the, st- the, the step of steady state, which is the required assumption for all of those creatinine to EGFR calculators that everyone uses. Yep. But it's calculated. Right. So it reports and reports out as data. And multiple it's, decimal points. Right. <laughs> no. All of which You're are Right. It's got to be and so I, precise. And I like the idea that you need to be in steady state to calculate an EGFR from a creatinine or to calculate uh, a GFR from a creatinine clearance as well is important. I feel that you lose a lot of the yes. super tentorial processing when you get that because so like how many of you guys and I, I know that you've seen this also but uh, like in the patients that have done the uh, inpatient 24-hour urine collections are those who have a creatinine that is like one but their BUN is like 120 the FOSS is high the K is high and they just look terrible and you're like what is going on here and then either you get a cystatin C or 24-hour urine collection I've seen the differential there being from a creatinine of one and this is a, a patient 
situation was like extremely cachectic, but the cystatin C was like 5.5. Like, and then it made sense. And then the patient was very loopy. The BN was 220. I was like, no, this is a case where this patient actually was uremic, but nobody was even like AKI was not even in the problem list of the primary team. And this is the problem when you see this, uh, you know, this, uh, you, you just forget the, the processing, the understanding of what it is that you're actually getting when you get one of these equations. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about measurements, the, me the mechanisms of measurement? What do you want to talk about specifically? Well, you know, of course, you could do a 24-hour urine, and that's good if you're in steady state. One of the things people don't realize is why do we do a 24-hour urine? You could do, you know, you could do a five-hour creatinine clearance and divide by 300 minutes as opposed to 1440 minutes. And the idea behind a 24-hour urine is because most people urinate when they wake up in the morning, and so you could start with an empty bladder and end with it, and, and end with an empty bladder. You get a pure collection and enough time because really, what your V is not volume, V is flow rate, and you're trying to get an accurate flow rate. And so the longer you collect that, the better off you are. And one day seems like a reasonable thing. But that's a kind of a pain, you know. So we, that's why we came up with these estimations. And there was a time when you would just take a, a 100 and divide by the creatinine and get a creatinine clearance. So if it was one, it would be 100. If it was two, you'd be 50. It was three, it'd be 33. It's really not a bad way. All things considered, if you've got an average person, it kind of gives you a, a general estimation. And then Cockroft and Galt came out with their equation in 1976. And, you know, I pulled that original paper today. It's kind of amazing. It was done on 200, about 250 patients. They started with 500. It was at the VA, first of all. So it's 96% men. And they got rid of about half of the patients because when they measured their creatinine clearance, if it varied by more than 20%, they measured several. If it varied by more than 20%, they threw it out, which is interesting because how do we know that that's a collection problem and that people's GFRs don't change 20% from day to day? We don't know that if you a priori decide that that's invalid data. Regardless, they threw that. So they ended up with about 250 people. 96% of them were men. And they came up with this equation. And But at least it was a correlated creatinine clearance with, which is again, a little higher than GFR, but with their serum creatinine. And, you know, you just basically do a linear uh, regression analysis and come up with an equation and found that, you know, weight was related. And so they finally took age in because older people have produced less creatinine. So that that was a factor and took in weight, but it's a lot better than 100 divided by creatinine. And so, you know, that's really what was it. And then, you know, no one was going to do inulin clearances. And Cockroft and Galt, as bad as it is, it really isn't. It is not awful. It's Again, we're talking about delta more than absolute numbers. We talk about delta in proteinuria. We talk about delta in creatinine. Delta in clearance is more important than actually what their, what their numbers are. So people didn't do that. And the only reason that we have for instance, these equations now, the MDRD and the CKD-EPI equations, is because all these studies that were done tried to measure GFR because they thought that was going to be the, the ultimate endpoint. You'd come up with an iothalmate clearance. The coefficient of variation of that of those studies was about, on the average coefficient of variation was 20%, which means that you do four of these values, the difference between those clearances of those four different values would be up to 20%. And then we'd average them. So we hopefully we had a number that would that would be reasonable. But you don't know how good a GFR it is because because the, the coefficient of variation. So we do this every you know whatever four or five months or three or four months, and then we and we had their GFR curves. But we were fortunately not we, but the people that designed the study were, were smart enough to realize that that may not be a sensitive enough endpoint. And so as a result, they came up with a much more solid endpoint, and that's where doubling of the serum creatinine came from. Because doubling the serum creatinine generally means that you've lost half your renal function, which was confirmed. Whereas curves. You know, it's a slippery slope with uh, with GFR curves, especially when you put somebody on an ACE inhibitor and their GFR falls acutely. We talked about that with SGLT. And it does the same thing with protein restriction. 
falls acutely, and that acute fall is not what's really doing it. What you wanted to look at is the curve from that point on, and you realize that if you just took the whole curve, it's mucked up, it's muddled by the initial drop in hemodynamic GFR, and that's probably the downfall of the MDRD because their endpoint was was the change in GFR. And had they done something a much harder endpoint, which what we did, which was doubling the serum creatinine, they might have been a positive. So the MDRD fails as a clinical trial, but they end up with all this data. And what do they do with it? Well, Andy Levy's a very smart man. And he says, well, let me look at, I have I have hundreds of GFR collections in diabetics. And then the MDRD, I have hundreds of, of diophthalmic clearance of something, but they have all these other measurements of GFR that are not inulin, and they're certainly not creatinine clearance, uh, which are excellent measurements. And they come up with these equations. But there is a huge amount of splay. I mean, a huge amount of splay. So while it's good for a population, it's really not necessarily that reliable for an individual. There's a lot of variabilities. It's very difficult to estimate a GFR from a single creatinine, even if with age, gender, race, it's just not enough data. You can't get that. It really isn't. And, but people put all this weight on it. And I think it's a mistake. But, but I, I just want to, I want to just go back to the Cockroft Gall. It just, it's not, it, it just doesn't use modern statistical approaches to generate its, its, its calculation, right? There's no, uh, derivation group and then a, uh, what do they call the second, the, the, uh, validation, validation, yeah. validation group. They don't, they don't do that. It's all in patients, right? Patients are in the hospital, not for no reason. So they are sick with something, right? Presumably not acute kidney injury, hopefully, right? And so not probably not a great population to then extrapolate to the thousands of outpatients that we're using on this data. And I remember when we were writing nephrology secrets, um, we had Leslie Inker. Dr. Dr. Inker, who is a uh, one of the nephrologists and scientists that did derived the MDRD and the CKD epi, works directly with Andy Levy. Excuse me, CKD epi, and she um, and so I said we should build this chapter. We should start with Cockroft Galton and slowly work up from there. And she's like, I refuse to even include Cockroft Galton in the chapter. I swear to God, it's not in the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> So th- that's what she felt about that. <laughs> she, she wants to banish it. Cockroft Galt was using weight as a sort of a proxy for muscle mass. And at the time, obesity was less of an issue than it is now. And so it may have been a little bit more valid well, than it is the now. 72 in the really denominator. the 72 in the denominator is the average weight of the participants in the study. And I don't have a cohort in my Hospital has an average weight of seventy-two kilos. It's not even remotely related (laughs) to muscle. Really, really good points there. It's you. You note when someone is muscular. It's the exception. Okay, we've hit a lot of this stuff to death. We've been talking a long time. The last section of the chapter is on uh, renal plasma flow that it can be determined with the PAH. I believe this is a Homer Smith innovation. Was uh, knowing that PAH. So we had. Inulin, which is freely filtered but not secreted or reabsorbed, and PAH is freely filtered and then completely secreted so that the concentration of PAH in the renal vein is essentially zero. The only PAH that makes it to the renal vein is stuff that entered the kidney and did not go through a glomerulus. Uh, It's possible for you were going to perfuse other parts of the kidney that apparently there's some blood flow that doesn't go through the glomerulus. But if it makes it to the glomerulus, it's going to end up in the urine. And so the PAH clearance is equal to the renal plasma flow. And that's the that's the strength there. Anybody have any comments about PAH? Well, PAH, uh, it's kind of uh, equivalent to inulin in the sense that it's 
It's a, a molecule that has been utilized experimentally as an ideal molecule to measure renal blood flow, but we don't use it clinically. And I want to go back to what the closest to that clinically is MAC3, correct? And, and although it's an indicator of renal blood flow for the reasons that we mentioned earlier, clinically is used more uh, to assess uh, obstructive uropathy because, as we explained a- late earlier, eventually uh, the, the sum of the filter MAC3 and the secretory MAC3 is going to go through the nephron all the down to the bladder so you can actually track the urine flow with MAC3. Uh, I want to ma- want to mention quickly a typo in this chapter, actually. Uh, <laughs> Good, all right. <laughs> yeah, there's the last, so the last paragraph of the last page, page uh, 60, uh, talks about the normal renal plasma flow and then renal blood flow in humans are roughly 625 mL per minute and 110. It should be actually 1,100. It should be 1,100 mL per minute, the renal blood flow. You know, renal plasma flow is only 1 minus hematocrit multiplied by the renal blood flow. So it should be 1.1 liters. So I think there was a zero that was lost in press. Nice. Leti, you want to talk about BUN and creatinine? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to. I mean, we can't. Yes, thank you. We do have to. We we have to. So urea is a byproduct of protein metabolism, and it is mostly excreted by the kidney. So there is this inverse relationship with GFR. The higher the urea, it may mean lower GFR. And I say may mean because urea or BUN, as it's measured in the blood, can also increase in concentration due to increased production. Essentially, anything that can increase protein metabolism can increase the BUN, but it could also increase due to increased reabsorption. And this primarily happens in hypovolemia, where urea is passively reabsorbed along with sodium and water in the proximal tubule. This gets us to the BUN to creatinine ratio. Usually, this ratio of the BUN and creatinine levels in the blood is about 10 to 1. However, in hypovolemic states, it can increase to greater than 20 to 1 due to this reabsorption of urea and the fact that we cannot reabsorb creatinine. So the rate of creatinine rise is lower. But this ratio has actually several limitations and one of the reasons why it tends to be kind of unhelpful test in uh, elucidating the etiology of AKI in a lot of the cases that we see. Yeah, that's one of my pet peeves is when they see a high BUN to creatinine ratio and they just automatically assume it's a GI bleed or something. And there's so many, like you said, there's so many factors go into it. Certainly when you're pre-renal, you reabsorb urea where you don't reabsorb creatinine because urea follows salt and water. And so you have a disproportionately decrease in, in urea excretion. And so the way I prove it to the to the felt to the residents is to do a fractional excretion of urea and show that it's that there it's fall and you have a fractional reabsorption goes from fifty percent to twenty percent and that proves that your high BUN to creatinine ratio is from increased urea reabsorption and not something else. Um, but I've seen people cirrhotics that just have no muscle mass and have a creatinine of one with a BUN of eighty and yes. their clearance can be ten mLs a minute. So there's so many things that, that go into this. You have to be very careful. I do not like looking at those numbers and making any assumption. I like thinking about them yes but and teaching about them but i think it's really dangerous but it, it's just the common oh someone's pre-real the bun is high and it's not that 
at all. Yeah. And how many patients do you have who haven't peed in like weeks and weeks and their BUN still, you know, or the, or the opposite. You have someone who's chronically ill in the ICU. Like we do get into this a lot, especially with uh, CT surgery patients who are in the ICU for months after LVADs and things like that. And they're on tube feeds. And these patients have really, really high BUNs, like they're always above a hundred, but they're getting dialysis three times a week, but their BUN always about bounce back up because they're on high protein tube feeds. And so, and then the, then you get the call like you must dialyze because they're uremic and so this is what i mean that you just like just like with egfr you just have to be able to interpret where this number is coming from you know there was a wacky study once three doctors put ng tubes in themselves and uh took expired blood from the blood bank and put it in their stomachs <laughs> and measured their bun and their buns did go up yeah about yeah. five no, okay. This is worse and than the guy who, the who drank H. pylori. <laughs> you, you know, the methods section of this paper is so funny. Oh. They were allowed to have uh, peppermints and and then <laughs> and they were allowed to smoke. And uh, and their B1s did go up, but only about five points. And then they calculated, they might have gotten this wrong, but they calculated how much protein they thought was in the uh, expired blood that they put in their ng tubes and uh and ate that and their buns went up more than uh like maybe by 20 compared to that so i always say it does go up but it's it's teeny yeah, and i i'm with yeah. roger i think it's really an issue of pre-renal state from the gi bleed yeah it's it was we- well so since you mentioned that eating things like for example yeah, a hamburger yeah. <laughs> someone look up the hamburger someone did anybody look up the hamburger? Yeah, so, let me talk about this because <laughs> Are you gonna talk know, about the hamburger. I couldn't believe it. He didn't look it up. He just knows. Yeah, Don't yeah, worry. I have an opinion on everything, whether it's real or not. But it, it, I'm going to read the paragraph. A more acute effect can be seen with the ingestion of cooked meat, since heating com- promotes conversion of creatine to creatinine. As an example, eating a four ounce hamburger, which is a quarter pounder, by the way, it's not small, can raise creatine excretion by as much as 350 to 450 milligrams. Now, we talk about somebody making an average of a gram of creatinine a day, and suddenly a single quarter pounder is going to increase that by 50%. That doesn't make any sense to me. And then the, the, the truth is, is that the creatinine, I think if you measured the same specimen three times, you wouldn't get the same number three times. It would easily, it could easily differ by 0.1. And yeah. and that may look like a lot, but it's, it's the assay is not that uh, sensitive either. That's why it cracks me up when they're now they're now reporting creatinine to a second. Yeah, get to a hundredth of a point. What the heck is I, this? I, yeah, what does I, that I, mean? I just I refuse to listen to it. I told you, do not. I don't want to hear that second decimal point because the test is not that yeah. it's not that uh, sensitive to be giving you a, a, a second decimal. See, point. we would we would be totally opposite. I would make if my resident doesn't know it to the de- the tenth of hundredth point. I'm like, what are you doing? Here? <laughs> get out. Go home. Yeah. What, no, do I you don't even care. care. But I want yeah. them to know. <laughs> no, I meant them. It's like, do you even that's want to be? A, that's why you get bad reviews. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> okay, guys, this is a, we another successful it. chat. Oh, oh my god! Did somebody have? Is there more? Does, do no, do we're else? done. We're done. Thank God. No. Okay. I gotta go eat a burger. Let's go get some burgers. Pee. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, seeing you guys all at Kidney Week next week. Right? We're all we'll, we'll all go to the bar. I'm yes. on. I'm on service. Okay. So, uh, the yeah, air quotes. We will Okay, let's. Uh, thank you very it's much. It's so sad. That's a good year to be on service, though, Letty, because now you're free uh, next year. This, this was you not know, on you accident. You can say, "Oh, I was on service 